0: Apple presents events at the Apple Store. I'd like to invite you guys to take a look at the trailer for The
1: Bay.
2: Nine one one, one, what are you reporting? I just
1: saw
2: bad. Sorry, did you say you say something bad?
0: Yeah, Where is she bleeding from? Good morning, Marilyn. I am in Claridge, the host of our annual July 4th party.
1: Oh, my God. Oh, my God.
3: This is the CDC.
0: We're in the middle of some kind of viral outbreak. It's eating their organs, intestines, liver. It goes for kidneys something wrong with the water this
2: stuff has chemical steroid in it hey we got a situation over the 911 call center and the system's about to go down we're just overloaded with calls stephanie you're not answering
0: your phone i do not want you to get off that boat
3: i'm just trying to figure out what's going on i know they shut down all the roads going into Clarity. now i'm flying over the water here and uh well there's just dead fish everywhere <laughs> oh, that's so no
0: big, I don't think he fits in this boat <laughs> never seen anything like that? never seen nothing what like that. What is is that? that
3: Son of a... You don't just shut down the eastern seaboard
2: without approval from a higher authority
3: As you can see here, we have these parasites Oh my god Isopods eating right through the fish's tongue There's something really wrong, help me
0: it's eating them from the inside. Dispatch. This body is everywhere.
3: Do you hear that? What are you doing? Look at a Don't beg me. do me. go. away!
0: I'm going to show the world what happened here. If you find this tape, just please get it out. We're going to be okay. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Robert Kohler of the New York Film Festival, and tonight's guest, Barry Levinson. Well, uh, thanks very much for uh, coming. Uh, We want to thank um, the Apple Store here in SoHo for uh, being a gracious uh, host uh, for our New York Film Festival Talks. Uh, This is the first um, in the festival. And so welcome to you all. And uh, it's uh, worth noting uh, that this also is the first of our midnight movies section in the New York Film Festival and new innovation uh, in the festival. So it's a first and a first. Uh, So you're right at the the beginning. Um, Now consider some of these titles. Diner, The Natural, Tin Man, Good Morning Vietnam, Rain Man, Bugsy, Homicide Life on the Street, Sleepers, Wag the Dog, Bandits. What Just Happened? But those titles. And that's just a sampling of Barry Levinson's work, not only for the cinema, but in a major way for television. And it suggests the range and tone and themes that's earned him accolades, respect plus five Oscar nominations and a Best Director Oscar for Rain Man. And a career that uh, stretches back to the mid-'70s and remains vital and current, uh, in this currency, uh, shown in uh, the sharp topicality of so many of his films and TV series um, that he's shepherded, ranging from the biting political satire of Wag the Dog uh, to the stunning series Oz, uh, which I hope you've all seen at one point or another. Um, it's always coexisted along with uh, an acute sense of the past, uh, particularly that of his beloved home city of Baltimore. Uh, few wor- working filmmakers, in fact, have been so devoted as a storyteller to their birthplace. Taken together, such movies as Diner, Tin Man, Avalon, as well as Homicide comprise a kind of a Baltimore and Maryland epic. But after all that, Barry Levinson has a surprise for all of us. That surprise is called The Bay. Uh, We're still in Maryland, and it's hugely topical. But The Bay brings out an entirely new and unexpected side of this uncommon filmmaker, and that's because he's made a horror movie, one that the New York Film Festival is extremely pleased uh, to kick off its new Midnight midnight Movies series. And it is a genuine midnight movie, I can tell you. Right now, we'll explore the Bay with our guest Barry Levinson. Uh, Barry, uh, it's interesting that uh, you can probably, uh, the audience can tell from the clips that uh, the aesthetic of this film is strikingly different from your other films in that there is a reality basis to it. Uh, You use the conceit of the found footage. I'm wondering uh, where that notion came from and how it was wedded up with the um, actual uh, reality of the Chesapeake Bay and the disastrous environmental conditions that really exist there.
2: Well, it's a a kind of convergence of several things. I was asked to do a documentary about the Chesapeake Bay, which is is 40% dead. and so I began to look into it, and then I found that there was a documentary that Frontline did that was really outstanding. But ultimately, you'd say, you didn't hear people carrying on and say, how can it be the largest estuary in the United States be 40% dead? And yet no one seems to care. So I told the people I really can't improve upon that documentary, and I, I decided to walk away from it. But the facts of what's wrong in the Chesapeake Bay and how frightening it is, I thought, well, that's an interesting, it's, it's frightening. And now maybe I should move it into a theatrical way, tell a, a fictitious story, and bring in about 85% of that factual information that it could frighten us, scare us in a lot of different ways, and at the same time, make us think about it. If we don't want to think about it, don't think about it. But at least it is a, that type of movie that has got all kinds of factual information that actually enforces the piece in a way. In some ways, in my mind at least, it makes it slightly more frightening as opposed to just fictitious elements. And that's, that idea stayed with me. And then it was like, well, then what form are we going to tell it in? And because I was thinking a documentary, I, was, I thought, well, maybe I'd use it. But as opposed to found footage with somebody had a camera and they were doing it, I thought, in our lives today, if something happened, how would we know what the people were like in a particular area? And all of us have cell phones. All of us have these some ways of recording things. We Skype. We use um, every type of device imaginable in order to, to talk to one another and video one another and take photographs. So I thought, what happens if someone just captured all of that stuff of all of those cell phones and all of the kind of cameras and all the digital thing and just brought it back and then tried to make sense out of one day... In Maryland, along the Chesapeake Bay. So I was thinking, not in the sense truly of the found footage, but that's a way that we we document our lives now. There's always little pieces of footage of a 20 seconds of a birthday party, 15 seconds at a swim party, some Skype back and forth, you know, uh, texting and emails and all of that. And I thought, well, that would be an interesting way to try to tell the story, and that's how it evolved.
0: What's really interesting about that in the context of your work is uh, that a characteristic of your films is they are uh, quite elegant uh, to watch. Uh, You're you're, uh, superb at framing and composing uh, your sequences and scenes. Uh, There's a real mise-en-scene that operates in your films. And what struck me watching The Bay is that you have to sacrifice that. You have to sort of give that up, um, because this is a the, the language of many video cams, of surveillance cameras, of Skype, of all that is not that. It's uh, very
2: imperfect. Yes. Yeah,
0: and I'm wondering, as a director who has such a refined style, on one hand, you had what was it like to actually well, give all that up?
2: You have to, you have to allow, you have to give up the control. Uh, in many cases, to the actors who were actually filming these sequences, and and that's a sort of an interesting that's an interesting thing because they're they are in control very often of the scene because you haven't seen the movie but they have to shoot in order to do it and then how 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 good is the framing or how bad is the framing is going to be interesting to us and sometimes they're going to do things that are so wrong that in fact they seem right because it we don't see everything that we should see at times and that actually adds to it it's like we would like to see more but unfortunately they didn't do it that way so that was kind of the fun of it in in many ways because we there was this 15 year old girl who was basically a day player and i thought she was interesting and i I told her this little scene that we can do and she took her iphone and she you know she went into this into this little space and I, I, I had to sit on the other side of the door, and she played this scene talking to her friend on her iPhone, and she's trying to show you know, these blisters that are breaking out, and after about three minutes, I knock on the door and said, okay, that's it, and then I come out and I look at the iPhone and see what, how she's photographed it, and then make some d- decisions based on that, and if we did another take, we sent her back in, and l- that's the way the, a lot of this movie's put together.
0: In effect, she became the cameraman and she becomes the, director, the cameraman,
2: the sound person, everyone.
0: In fact, I think we have that clip of that that very scene. Oh, do we? Uh, that? We can uh, that we can cue uh, up now and show.
2: People were worried about the economy and the water, but
0: mostly that wasn't their focus. They were just doing the American thing, you know, trying to make a living, dealing with their children, enjoying their lives and
3: everything seemed really pretty good.
0: Actually, gives an example of several uh, shots uh, where anonymous uh, people just
2: yeah. And that's a combination of people that we gave cameras to at the swim party. Kids that had cameras went underwater and did stuff. That's a combination of that and our cinematographer uh, at the same time that we would mix in, and we would have to be close to you know so you couldn't tell the difference between one and the other. And in that scene with the woman going down the street. There were a bunch of people who had those cameras that we would give them. They would record it, and our cinematographer would record as well. And that's how that's put together. So it's a, you end up with this kind of six or seven different cameras, perhaps. There was 21 different digital cameras being used. And so depending on what sequences, which ones we were actually using.
0: And, and also I think we were there seeing, on another technical end of it, an um, uh, example of uh, I think a brilliant contribution is your editor Aaron Yanes, who you've worked with uh, several times now. Uh, you the whole film is really an assemblage in effect of these clips of these various sources. Uh, and g- could you talk about your collaboration with Aaron because I think it was really a, a, a crucial factor in in the film's effect.
2: It's one of the more complicated parts of the movie because it has to be, um, it would be like if you if you threw um, three thousand photographs on the ground, you would have to m- begin to make some sense out of what took place. But uh, think of it as you have um, all of this digital information, and then you have to start to figure how best to piece this thing together in a, in a ragged fashion to try to tell this story. And so therefore, you can't make it too polished because then it begins; it gives it away in a sense. I mean, at the end of the day, we all know it's a movie. We're all kind of smart enough to go, "Oh, it's not for real." Although I have to tell you, when we were looking at about 25 minutes of footage one time, and the, the projectionist that was taking a look at, at it, uh, thought that it, it was collected footage at that point because it looked that you know credible. But you have to figure out how to keep keep it so that you don't belie and give away you know, the conceit that we actually had. So you have to cut it, it has to be cut like there wasn't enough footage there to see the next thing and you had to cut to something else. So there's a lot of that kind of finessing that goes on, which is actually quite interesting and very challenging because it's a little bit, you have to work with the idea of keeping one hand behind your back.
0: Was this whole thing a a wonderful kind of exercising of new muscles for you or different muscles as a filmmaker? Than you had ever done before, because the whole this whole project carries with it a completely from genre to the language to everything is yeah. quite far afield from what you've done before. It's a
2: it's a completely different thing, but that that's the fun. I mean, I have to tell you, with all the all the, the aggravation that goes on in the business, which is in the film business, and most of it is the business side that is the most. Uh, uh, Disappointing aspect of it, but the actual making of things is fascinating to me. The idea that you can go from, say, the, the elegant, the elegance of say the natural to the very crude, roughness of, of the bay is interesting for me to explore. And look, for you're here in in uh, in the in this story here. Um, with Apple and all this technology. This technology is going to inform us today and tomorrow, and out of it is going to, all of this language of communication changes. The visual components begin to change. The, the sound components begin to change as we, as we evolve. So people will be, can now, anyone can tell a story with a digital, with a, with a digital you know, phone. You can begin to do anything. So storytelling is going to evolve in ways that we don't even know yet. So for me, the, to go from, say, a more classical structure to something which is more ragged or rough or whatever is very challenging to me, as opposed to saying, no, I only do this. The fun for me is, how many different ways can you tell a story? And I'm open to any of those ideas.
0: I'm interested in, in uh, the, your emotional and your personal connection with this story, because at heart, this is a story about a... a Beloved and legendary body of water on the Atlantic coast, uh, but especially beloved for Maryland and Delaware and that whole region um, the Chesapeake Bay is one of the great American treasures and and a and a great estuary um, and uh, as a as a boy of Baltimore and of maryland i'm really interested in your emotional connection with the conditions in the bay and the environmental degradation that's going on which really informs the horror movie
2: well it does i mean the unfortunate thing about the chesapeake bay i mean it's it it is beautiful but there's all of this kind of fish and all of obviously the blue crab and the oysters and everything else that comes from it but in the fact that it's 40 percent dead that's 40 percent dead nothing exists in 40% of the bay. The bay used to be grass bottom, it no longer has grass. The bay used to be able to, because of the oyster beds, used to be able to self-clean itself every four days, and no longer can do that. The pollution is being brought about from a number of different things, all which in fact can all be corrected. And everybody understands the economics of business and all of that, but at the same time, you could improve it. But there isn't ultimately a strong enough will to improve it. So for me, it's like frustrating to see this largest estuary in the United States continue to deteriorate in a sense because of true negligence. I mean, I do remember as a kid, because we would go down and we'd be in the bay and it was grass bottom and used to swim in the the high grass that would be there, etc. And all of that's gone today. It's still a beautiful, beautiful area. And when you look at it from the top at times, it looks like it's pristine and perfect. It's when you go underwater, then you see some of the problems of it. But just like all of these issues that we have in terms of infrastructure of the United States, we, in fact, can do better. Uh, but we haven't the will yet, and we haven't, we haven't sat down to figure out how, how do we basically make these corrections without ultimately killing everything economically? We can do better. The fact is that we haven't. So those things stay with me in some way as a storyteller. I can't make a, a piece, and I'm not trying to say that this is a, this is a movie that's just all this kind of information. I'm telling a story that you can get involved in. And behind it, there's a lot of this kind of science that the, the filtration systems, water filtration systems of the United States are D minus. I mean, that is fact. We, can we make it better? Absolutely. Do we? No. Why? There's a bunch of reasons why. So by taking a lot of factual information, put it into a theatrical type of piece where you're telling a story that in fact is not real, I think just made for uh, uh, an, an interesting, uh, you know, ninety minutes.
0: And it's interesting too that uh, the horror movie genre is an especially effective way of delivering environmental messages. There is really a great tradition of it. Uh, uh, a recent example is Larry Fessenden's Last Winter, which uh, uh, horror fans are. Uh, it has a really great cult following. Um, that's one of the advantages of genre, in a way, that you can yeah. sort of smuggle in, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, sm- <laughs> strong messages uh, through uh, familiar genre it's vehicles. True.
2: Yeah, I mean, historically, it's been mixed into it. You know, when our fear, of, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, nuclear, you know, weapons and et cetera and how it would creep into certain sci-fi movies of the '50s, and the mutants that came from. You know all of uh, all of that that was played out. I mean, so it does have a it does have a way into it, and it's just a little bit left of center. You know, the movie can scare you, unnerve you, etc. But it's a little left of center. It doesn't have zombies in it. Uh, you know, it doesn't have some of those things that are being used today. But it can still hold your attention and, and keep you pretty um, locked in on the screen of what's going to happen next.
0: Well, we we were just talking about this just before we came on that. Uh, you, you could say that, sure, you know, it doesn't have uh, maybe elements of torture porn like Saw, the Saw uh, franchise or something like that, or it isn't a, a Splatterville um, kind of movie. But I found it affected my behavior. I had a really hard time turning on the tap water uh, <laughs> about a, a, a just right after finishing the movie. i like, God, do I want to... <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, rationally I knew good, the water was going to be fine, but it makes you, like when you see the exorcist and you keep the lights on in your bedroom uh, that night. I mean, when, you affect, when you're a movie maker and you affect audience behavior, that's got to be really rewarding.
2: Well, you know? I mean, it is. I mean, uh, I mean, it goes back to, you know, whether you can make them laugh, you know, whether you can make them cheer. I mean, that was, that, you know, there are all those emotions that are all part of what f- films are. And if you can tell a story and and get some of those things, whether whether it is a scare or a scream or watching a collective audience like suddenly lift in their seats, as happens in this movie a few times, um, you know it's part of the it's part of the the storyteller making the connection with the, with an audience.
0: Talk about casting uh, the casting is is very interesting in the film. It's a cast of virtual unknowns by design um, must have been its own kind of adventure.
2: Well, it is because, I mean, look, as I said, it is a movie, but even within that conceit, if we are saying these were the people who lived in this town, you can't have Brad Pitt living in, you know, on, on the eastern shore of of Maryland or Matt Damon. So you do suddenly, you're, you're, you, you have to have unknown faces to at least give the credibility to the piece you're doing. So... Um, I saw a lot of people, but I needed to basically to have the anonymous face so that it looked like these could have been the people who lived in the town who went through this experience. So that that was the kind of casting call we had to have.
0: And how massive was that? Because that could be almost anybody. I mean, it, it well,
2: it can, and uh, you know, it's like, um, I mean, when I did Diner, I basically had to use an I used an unknown cast in Diner. Uh, in this movie, you see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people to try to find those the few that ultimately are on screen. And, of course, where we shot, we picked up a lot of day players, and some of them actually were really good, and then I would, I would, we would give them more things to do. Uh, so, like, the iPhone girl has more scenes... Originally, she it was a very small thing, but I thought she was so interesting. The funny thing is, after she did the one scene, and I, I thought, gee, I, I could use her in another scene. And I said to her about doing another scene, and she didn't seem that interested. And I said, uh, well, don't you want to? Wouldn't you like to do another scene? And she said, well, I'm going to need a note from school. <laughs> <laughs> So we had to write a note, please excuse so-and-so as she's going to be filming on Thursday, et cetera, et cetera, to get her out of class.
0: And you could tell from both the trailer and the clip, and we have another clip uh, uh, here uh, that takes us in, uh, touches on a different theme of the movie. Uh, there's a lot of improv that's required of yes. these actors. And improv is hard. Uh, skilled actors who are trained in improv work at it for years here you had both unknown actors, day players and also improv. And actually in
2: the scene if you're going to show in Skyping they were actually using Skype so all of them were there all talking simultaneously rather than shooting one at a time. So we found a way to hook them all up so they were actually all communicating with one another so that you get a real natural like they all sound like they're They're, you know, talking over one another, whatever. Right.
0: That Robert Altman effect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This next clip, uh, if we could set it up, uh, you can maybe set up, uh, involves uh, communication with the uh, CDC, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, which gets involved in this outbreak that's happening in Claridge, Maryland, the town where the Bay is set. Uh, could you describe a sort of set up uh, how the CDC is getting involved? And: They get what's involved? So because
2: there's a doctor in Maryland who begins to, to, um, to communicate with the CDC about an issue that's going on in the Chesapeake Bay in this outbreak, and they ultimately hook into this one unit of the CDC, and that's what starts this um, skypes back and forth between these various bureaus and them trying to figure that out. I think Great. that's what piece we're talking about.
0: Yeah, let's cue uh, up that clip.
3: What the hell is going on at the Chesapeake Bay? What are you talking about? Is there anything in there that could cause disease, bacterial outbreak, or mutations? Well, the bay has been found to have pollutants um, algae, agricultural runoff, chicken excrement. Um... Go on. There was a small leak from a nuclear reactor in 2002 but uh, we weren't expecting it to hit the bay until 2014, but it is coming through the ground, so it could have hit earlier. Are people drinking this water? Of course not. The bay is brackish, you can't drink it. But there is a level of seepage into local wells, and of course a desalination plant in Claridge.
2: With that desalination plant, we have increased the capacity for poultry farming in the area. Those chickens drink about. 2,000 gallons of water a day.
3: I think the NEF said it was 0.3 liters of dirty water, so there could be radium or tritium Radio in there.
2: Constructors, pharmaceuticals.
3: Algae, agricultural runoff, chicken excrement. There was a small leak from a nuclear reactor in 2002. And you don't want any? Well, it's not under our regulations to test for radioactivity levels in water. Look, half the water in America probably has some leaks in it.
2: Yep. Don't you regulate the water?
3: The filtered water has met all regulatory standards.
2: That Five over there has million a pounds of chicken chip dumped in the
0: bank this year. This is the best darn water I've ever tasted. So don't drink the water. <laughs> in Claridge, Maryland. In Claridge, Maryland. You know, a, a thing that that's inspired by uh, watching that clip, too, is... Uh, and I, I don't know how conscious you were of this, of the history of horror, f- horror movies where you have... In just in this clip, you're triggered memories of George Romero, of Jaws, of the Blair Witch Project, uh, the night vision, uh, you know, and different images. How conscious of you were you were you of that legacy in making the movie? Was was that something you were aware of,
2: conscious of? Uh, no, I think what happens is once you once you go down the road, you just sort of think about what it is you're doing as opposed to what did they do or how to do or any of that. I think is what happens is, you know, you've seen these, these various movies over the years, but once you lock into it, then you just sort of, that's the path you're going down as opposed to keeping that in your head. So then, therefore, it'll, it'll evolve in certain ways that, that it opens the door. I always found that sometimes if, there's, if, you, if you have too much rigidity then, then the piece can expand it's in a natural fashion. So I try to keep it as, as loose as I can to allow for as much invention or discovery along the way.
0: Well, let's open it up to um, questions from the audience. Uh, we have um, a mic. Just raise your hand. I'll raise come right on over to you. Oh. What role does the director pay play in the sound and music? Do you make all those choices and how do you do it? Yes,
2: think? because you know, it's <clears throat> it's it's a part of a film. So therefore the the sound you want it to sound a certain way uh just like you want uh the certain the, the music or whether it is pure music or whether the music becomes almost like sound effects, you have to find a way to make that if to to, to f- to come up to what your expectations were. We were talking earlier, I'm saying, in and there, there's a 9-11 operator. And we would interview a lot of people and they didn't sound like 9-11 operators to me. So we literally got a 9-11 operator and we just started talking to her and then she would start asking questions. And that's in a sense, sound is very important. It has, a, it has effects on us in ways that we don't even think about, but it's a very important component of a, of a film on the other side, all the way in the back row. Excuse me, this is a two-part question. Um, The first is, coming all the way from Wag the Dog, Rain Man, how much education did you have to put into using new technology, such as iPhone, iPad, um, Skype, into uh, the Bay? Uh, How much did I uh, need to learn in terms of that, um, was the question, about in terms of the technology of it all? Um, what happens is, I mean, it's, it's just around us all the time now. So, what happens is you start playing with every piece of digital thing that comes along and you want to see it. So, for instance, when we were preparing to do this movie, we ran tests on every imaginable digital camera to see what characteristics it had, what kind of color because each one has a different color palette, slightly different than another. Some have a higher contrast, etc. cetera. Uh, and so we, we went through all those, and then we began to say, okay, well, let's try this one. Let's do this, this one, and that. and Pick this one out, et cetera, et cetera. And even after that, then, of course, we would do it in the in the DI suites where we still would play and manipulate the, the picture as well. Sometimes the picture actually looked, this is surprising, better than we thought it should. So we thought it looked... Almost fake, so we had to degrade it even more. So, and so, it, that's that's a little bit of a learning experience to see what happens when you take a digital and you're blowing it up to a big screen. Uh, how much will it deteriorate? How much? Will it, so there's a lot of that kind of testing that we had to do prior to to the filming of it, and uh, which was actually a, it's you know it's it's fun to play around with all the toys and see what what the limitations are or how expansive is that. Where does it? What does that do for us?
3: And also, coming from the Chesapeake Bay, coming from Maryland, um, filming the uh, the bay in that area, uh, were you proud to bring the, uh, some
2: economic growth to that area, to the people, to the day players, and some pride to that area, being from that area as well? Well, I mean, I, it's, it remains to be seen how the corporations along the Chesapeake Bay would respond to the movie, uh, which I don't know, but I'm, I'm, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'm sure they'll have their own take on, on that. But my thing is, and I do have, I do have this feeling mean, for growing up in the region and I have an affection for it. Like a lot of us do where we grow up in a certain place that that's our, that's our backyard. And so, um, I thought it would be interesting to, to, to show these things. I mean, there are, it is, in fact, if you fall in the Chesapeake Bay, as because I, I still have a place there that someone, someone on vacation uh, from college fell in and had a cut on their leg and fell into the water accidentally, and they had to go to the emergency ward, and they got like five different antibiotic shots, so they might not get one of those you know, uh, things that you can pick up. I mean, there is this disease called you know, Vibrio, which is, in fact, in certain circumstances, and this is not happening on a regular basis, will literally get into your body and it'll kill you in 24 hours. You know, that does exist. That isn't, those viruses are in that water. And it is, at times, like a toxic soup. Now, not to over scare anybody, you say, because it's 40% dead and these are other things that are not happening on a daily basis. But it's already, you say, can't we do better? Let's not, can we just eliminate some of these issues? And so at some point, you've got to say, look, uh, we might as well talk about it. And in this case, rather than talk, and sometimes you're, you're talking you know, to, to those who already are, you know, are, are in agreement with you, in this case, you tell a story and you feed in certain pieces of information that add to, I think, the overall entertainment of it. And then the other thing is you can talk about it afterwards if you so feel compelled to kick those things around. Next question in the third row, middle. Hi. Um, your, the
0: music in your films there are, are always so it's always so great. Can you discuss your relationship with uh, the composers and how you work with them and how involved you get with arrangements and the orchestrations and the cueing and?
2: It's an interesting. I mean, it's an interesting question. Because how do you work with a composer, and how do you pick a composer? And I'll just give you, because there's like 25 or 26 movies, but I'll just give you, say, Rain Man. In Rain Man, I could not figure out what kind of music to play. But the only thing I knew was I did not want a guitar sound. I didn't want strings. Strings, it's like, because that's what you normally have on the road. A road picture has guitar sound to it. And I I could not hear it in my ear. And I said, what kind of music is it? Because we've got to push the movie along. But I cannot hear strings. And I thought it's somehow percussion, just a percussion sound. And that's what ultimately led to Hans Zimmer, who was living in London at that time, and ultimately brought him over. And there's no percussion in it. I mean, there's all percussion. There are no strings in it. Now, here's the irony of it. And this is, believe me, I'm not I'm not that smart to know all of these things. I was speaking to someone after they had seen the movie and the music. He said, you know what's interesting? What you did here is that, Autistic people respond to percussion, not to, to strings. The percussion of it is, is, is the thing that drives them. So in some strange way, you pick this up in the air. And that's why if you listen to Rain it's got this constant drums. It has, it has flute sounds, et cetera, and other things, and obviously very synthesized things to it, but no strings. Next question is in the front row, right in the middle.
3: Hi, I, was a bit, I want to say I'm a big fan. I grew up watching your movies, and thank, thank you. you for coming. But um,
0: I saw you in I saw you in Side by Side, the documentary that came out recently. And I was wanted to know how um, excited you were about shooting a lot of this stuff, this like new genre with uh, the Paranormal Activity producers. And um, like how exciting, how excited are you as like uh, I want to say just like a classic director, like in my generation, for example, to tackle this like new medium and kind of breathe new life into it? Because I feel like a lot of it
3: has lost its spark already.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, as I, as I said, I mean, I think that's the fun of it. I, I think if you begin to see yourself as doing one thing, then you're beginning to kind of put a wall around yourself, and then you're no longer open to things. You know, um, everything changes. Everything, nothing stays the same. So for me, I'm, I'm, gra- I'm, I'm happy to explore any other way to make a movie uh, in, in any possible fashion. So, like, if... <clears throat> I think that's the excitement of it. You know, for a long, long time, the technology stayed the same. For a long time, from the 30s well into the 80s, it was basically the same technology. Hardly any changes at all. You know, they refined the lens, et cetera, and the speed got faster, but it was the same technology. Now the door is open to a whole new world. And so... You want to keep your hand in there. It's like you know. It's like people who are like, yeah, I like 50s rock and roll, but I mean, the world is changing, and you can't just stay in one one place. You find other things that will intrigue you, and so for me, it's that's the fun of it. That's the fun of for me as a, as a storyteller, being in this business and trying ways to try to get people to just watch what's on the screen. And whether it's a big screen or a small screen, I think the distinction of, of features versus television is coming to an end. Because in the end of the day, when it's all said and done, everything is seen basically on television. And you know I mean I, I never saw Casablanca in the movie theater. I saw it on television. I saw Citizen Kane on television. And you know, as to you growing up you're seeing movies that, you know, we, we think of going to the thing and where you've seen them on television. So it all comes to television or to something smaller than that, in the future, we will determine which way we want to watch something. But I think the concept of feature, to television, to, to every other form is going to be, uh, I think, are re- redefined.
0: You know, the, and the interesting thing is so much television, quality television, now is cinematic.
2: Yes. It, Very it, it's
0: a do- I mean, uh, the show, the, the incredible new series that you're involved with, Copper, Um, has such a rich cinematic uh, feel to it of old New York. Uh, I mean, it's right out of Gangs of New York and that that scale and that feel. So it's going the other way as well.
2: Well, yes, I think a lot more will come to television because you're seeing more actors, feature actors coming to television, more writers coming to television, more directors coming to television. It's a continual flow because what's happened is in the feature business, because of the corporation. The corporation is only interested in young kids up to like 28 years old. And the rest of the audience they don't care about anymore. They think that they're unimportant. So what's gonna happen? Anybody over the age of 28 to 30 is just gonna sit around and stare at a blank wall? They're gonna go find another outlet, and that's why cable, you see this explosion in cable and the storytelling in cable and all of these characters that are happening from Homeland to a lot of these new, these new pieces of work because features won't do it anymore. Features are not that interested in people. They're interested in cartoon people. They're interested in superheroes. They're interested in super cops. So that's why what's happening now is a lot of this has come to, to cable television and that's why we're beginning to see these shifts taking place. We have time for two more questions. We have one in the back row and then in the middle. Well,
1: I come from a place where water and the purity of water is, is heavily controlled. And actually, I've actually been convicted and fined for polluting a ditch. Um, so how come, first of all, the legislation is... Not not so uh, rigorous here that people can or that industries can pollute so heavily. And how come in a land of of recycling and everyone wanting to preserve the planet, is there no public outrage at this?
2: Well, we we have um, we always have issues in terms of you know between the corporation and the you know and the individual, and so there there's some there's this ongoing kind of collision of of um, of interest. And so what happens is that, in many cases, legislation, especially nowadays, never gets to the floor of the legislature. It just gets swept into the back room and nothing is voted upon. And we're always putting things off. Put it, let's put it off let's, next year, the year after that. And sometimes very minor things. Like you'll see in Maryland, because uh, I'll watch the Baltimore Oriole games on cable, you will see um, spots about save debate, so if we would bicycle more, save the bay, you know, bicycle more. But bicycling is not exactly going to save the bay. Can it clear up the air a little bit in some fashion? But what's going on in the bay is way beyond doing more bike riding. And so it it sounds like we're trying to make an effort, but we're really not. We need to do a much stronger uh, restrictions. And at the same time, not necessarily try to destroy the economic base. And that's the ongoing battle between one and the other. But, but all, all I w- would say is we can just do better. If we sat down and try to talk about it, we understand. It's not like it's a mystery. It's not like it's an unknown disease. We can just do better. But for whatever reason, we're too distracted and too divided to really take those positive steps.
1: Our industries have the same problem. You know, if they if they have to as they do have rigorous pollution control, costs go up. And indeed in the business I used to work in, we had, we had to look at having um, pollution control system that cost like a million pounds, which was a significant percentage of, of, our, of our sales each year. Yeah. So we have the same problems. You know, we have, and yet we have to meet those, I'm sorry, but those higher standards. So how is it that in Europe, you know, the industry is, hopefully about as successful as it is here but the burdens to support you know the public welfare are so much higher
2: well here because we have we you know you have a, a huge amount of corporate you know money that basically goes into creating you know public opinion and and so those lobbies those corporate lobbies are very very powerful so you can't discount how that maneuvers you know i mean as we understand everything is business Everybody gets it, but on the other hand, we have to have a better solution, because on one hand, you've got certain, certain corporations that don't want things to change, but if it gets bad enough, it's gonna start affecting these other businesses. It's not like it's just people are swimming. There's all other businesses along on the bay that, will, that continue to suffer the more the balance gets out of whack. So it's a little bit like everybody has to sit down and say, we really have to address this. We can't just kick the can down the road to another day. We have our final question right here in the middle. How do you choose your dream team? Like, how do you, there's, it's all creative people, and bringing them together, it, it makes for a lot of creative visions. Yeah. How do you choose? Well, well in a, in, there's a bunch of different ways. In this particular case, it's not like I can just pick You know, say, oh, I'm going to get so-and-so like the natural. Caleb Deschanel would be a great cinematographer and -and so-and-so. In this particular case, it is really discovery on a lot of levels. New actors that that I've never seen, a lot of day people that I haven't dealt with, a cinematographer that I've never worked with who's really not made feature films. You know, I'm bringing a lot of new people and most of the crew, a lot of very new people involved in it. So this was... Not like picking the people, like, oh, yeah, get that. This was trying to find the people to make it work. Huh? Yes, I would meet with them. i talked talk to them about it. We'd look at stuff and try to find the sensibility for some of those people to put it together. Well, Barry,
0: thanks so much for a great conversation, and I uh, hope we'll all see you at midnight uh, for uh, The Bay and the beginning of our midnight movie's um, selection here at the New York Film Festival. Um, Barry, thanks again very much.
2: Great pleasure, thanks a lot, Thanks. thanks guys.